Would you turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3? And as you are, I wanted to ask you, if you were to think, uh, we're a few weeks in, for if you're new here and this is your first time with us or you, you haven't been with us in a bit, we have moved into a series in the book of Genesis. We're titling it Origins, and really what we're seeing here is the origins of the grace of God. And uh, I fully believe that. I think that even Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with it, it is probably titled on your app or in your Bible, The Fall. And you may think like, the fall doesn't sound like the grace of God. And yet, I think that the fall reveals the grace of God in the most cosmically huge, like hard to express words that are how big the grace of God is revealed in Genesis chapter 3. But it's a difficult passage for us to get through. But if I were to ask you up to this point in Genesis 1 and 2, as we see God as Elohim, the the creator who is ruling, powerful enough to create and powerful enough to rule and sustain his creation, and God who has created us as image bearers, those who are here as his representative on earth as a part of his creation, I would want to ask you the question, what's the difference between what we see in Genesis and the world that we experience today? I would imagine it's fairly vast. But what are some of the key differences that you can think of? And this isn't a rhetorical question, just kind of intended to get our minds working this morning as we, as we turn to God's word. And, and as I think about that, I, I wonder if there are things that we think about clearly when it comes to uh, the differences that we see. And I would imagine that there, it's pretty easy to come up with some, right? It's pretty easy to come up with some, but why are there differences? We have to wrestle with that question. What caused the change that we know and experience in life today? And I think that Genesis chapter 3, we're going to wrestle with those questions. Looking, We're actually going to begin today in chapter 2, verse 24. And we're going to read all the way through Genesis 3, 24. And as we do, I thought it might be helpful for us to hear this passage in a unique way today. And so if I could invite our readers up this morning... Uh, I had this idea earlier this week, and every once in a while I have an idea that just doesn't work, but this one, I think it only took like 10 minutes for these folks to just jump at this opportunity, and I am so grateful for that, because I think that we're going to benefit as a church from hearing Genesis chapter 3 in a unique way today. So I'd like to thank uh, Jennifer Voziat, uh, Benson Baby, Jeremy Price, Jay Lewis, and Jennifer Lewis, because they just jumped at the chance to bring Scripture to us in just a unique and fresh way this morning. So if you're in your Bible or your app to Genesis 3, let's listen along together as they read this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these individuals helping to bring it to life in our imaginations, but Lord, what we ask for your spirit to do now is bringing bring it to life in our everyday experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Now back to my opening question. What was it that caused the difference in what we see in the creation accounts in Genesis and what we experience so often in the world today? In our relationships, in our work, in our, in our recreation even, what is it that caused this Harm. Let's think about the Garden of Eden for just a moment. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, we see this close, loving fellowship with our Creator. 
there is this peace and affection that is just unquestioned. There's, there's not even a hint that there would be something wrong with uh, the, the fullness and the wholeness that they are experiencing in creation because it's all that they've ever known. There's this affection between husband and wife. There's this relationship that just works as it was perfectly created to. There's provision that's uh, there's a freedom to it. There's this abundance to the provision that they receive. That's what we see in the, in the Garden of Eden. There's, there's not strife. There's not striving. There's no, there's no contempt between those things in the world. And what do we experience in the world today? Well, we, we experience separation. We experience discord. We experience that both in our relationship with one another and more importantly, we experience that in our relationship with God, don't we? It's a key difference that's not the close loving fellowship with the creator that we were created and uniquely designed for. What else do we experience in the world today? There's divorce, there's infighting, there's breakdown in marital relationships and in re- re- and other relationships as well between mothers and fathers, between uh, children and their parents, between friends and family. There's all of these relational discord. What else do we experience in the world? We experience starvation. We experience poverty, a want. Our world's a mess. I don't think that's, that's not like the main point today. I think that's the easiest point to make today. Countries can't get along. Families hold lifetime grudges. There are regrets that may plague your conscience day after day. There's that story that happened in middle school and you participated or you just didn't speak up. There's those types of experience that all of us walk around with. Even the earth around us and beneath us seems to suffer from a sickness that's just played out in different weather weather patterns and natural disasters. The world is a mess. So how can what God called good so bad? Well, Genesis 3 tells us. Genesis 3 tells us. In the Garden of Eden, there was this place that was too beautiful for such ugly events. There was this choice that was made in this moment of doubt in, in Adam and Eve. A choice that was made that, that caused peace and the perfection that they were experiencing in the garden. Both Adam and Eve were experiencing there. They shattered like glass into just millions of pieces. Scattered throughout the world, and we still suffer the the consequences of their actions today. We're going to explore that a little bit more, but we experience it in the world, but more importantly, in our own hearts, we experience those things, that loss, that hurt, that harm. We both receive and we are the givers of that type of harm, aren't we? And it grieves us. I intentionally actually had our readers begin the passage today in chapter 2, verse 24, because I think that there's something significant about seeing the very good that that Adam and Eve were experiencing, that they were naked and not ashamed. They were able to be there in this vulnerable place, a picture of wholeness, cooperation, an embraced vulnerability. And then what happens at the end of chapter 3? They need clothing because they're ashamed. 
I've appreciated the work by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in preparing for today. In his book, The Gospel in Genesis, From Fig Leaves to Faith, and helping us understand that Genesis 3 isn't just something that's included in Scripture to help us understand how the world came into its fallen state, but it continues, Genesis 3 continues to speak to our hearts even today. This is what he says. Nothing in the world is as practical as the teaching of the Bible. Indeed, the whole purpose of that book is to come to us with its instruction and its enlightenment concerning the very situation in which we find ourselves. It speaks to us in the very position that we are at in this moment. Indeed, it always insists upon doing that. It says, I'm interested in you, and I want to talk to you about yourself. Genesis 3 provides a dire picture of our reality in this life and eternally without Christ. But we remember that Genesis is about the origins of the grace of God. And even in the midst of this dire reality, we are given a glimpse of hope through the comfort of the gospel. So I think it's helpful for us to begin in verses 1 through 6 where we define some terms uh, around sin, transgression, and trespass in Scripture and in the church, we'll use a, a few different terms at times to talk about our wrongs against a holy God. And if we think about verses one through three, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes in like the, the news aggregation app that I use, it's called Flipboard, uh, I'll get these ads for something called master classes. Have any of you seen those master class? I don't know why Steve Martin is teaching a master class. Like, I don't know the last time I need to be able to play banjo with an arrow through my head, but like, Apparently, Steve Martin is uh, teaching a master class on comedy. And, and so that's an ad that I receive. I have no idea why. And there are master classes all over the place. If you're a teacher, it seems like the market to get in on right now. If you're an expert at something, get in on this market. But there's a master class that we actually see here in Genesis chapter 3, and it's a master class in this temptation. Now, I, I'm not encouraging us as a church to learn how to tempt well. What I'm encouraging us to do is to know our enemy. Genesis chapter 3 shows us a perfect picture of a master class in deception. A master class in temptation. See, God had made the the garden for the man and the woman to enjoy. Eve didn't deny that. But she went on and she added something to the scripture. She went beyond when she said, neither shall you touch it lest you die in verse 3. So Satan comes in and he begins to ask these questions, these simple questions that just kind of wriggle her loose from truth enough to do one of two things, to either move away from it or to add to it. Why? So that she doesn't add up and it doesn't measure up. And all of a sudden what happens, the craving is the desire in her heart. Tell her to long for more than what God has already provided for her. It's a master class in temptation. It seems like he's just asking simple questions, but what he's really doing is he is changing what our hearts long for. He is taking trust from one source and putting it on another. And so Eve does not trust. She actually adds a strictness to God's word. If you remember from school days, she would have been the person asking, wasn't there homework for tonight? And then the whole class groans. She adds to something unnecessarily because she's beginning to reveal what's going on in her own heart. 
verses 4 through 6 show us that the danger of temptation and sin is that it takes God's word and it begins to twist it, changing his commands into something that's more palatable for our ears. And can I just say this? Uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of define sin and trespass and transgression in just a moment. I understand in the world today that there is a good bit about the authority of God's word that is questioned. That's in the world. I'm not surprised that the world would question the authority and the inerrancy of God's word. But it's a fixed target. It's not wondering about its authority. God's word is not wondering about its inerrancy. And that's actually good news for us. That should be something that comforts us because it, it, does not, it is not confused about itself because it's from a perfect and holy God. And it is fixed in its place in his revelation of himself. And what does that tell us? That there is a fixed target that we are aiming for. Now, what does Romans reveal to us? That we fall short. Actually, in the core of the definition of sin is that it's like a, a, a bullseye and that the, we are missing the mark. That we fall short of the glory of God is what Romans says. We miss the mark. That's some of the phrases that are used to help us understand and define sin. But can I say this? I am aware that I miss the mark. Can, I'm just grateful that it's not a moving target. God knows what his word is. His Holy Spirit will reveal it to us. We can trust and have faith in its authority and its inerrancy. And we can understand that we do fall short. We collectively, me, you, all of us together, this gathering of the redeemed. But Christ, Christ pays the cost of our missing the mark in our sin. What about transgression? It means to cross over. This week as I've been thinking about it, in driving back and forth to my house, I've realized that I experience transgression from others often. It seems to me, and, and I know that driving can be kind of like a, a common analogy, and so this isn't me talking about my anger and driving or anything else like that. It's actually talking about how we seem to have lost the art of the U-turn. Has anybody else noticed this? Like Waze will all of a sudden, or your directional app will all of a sudden update, and it's like you're in this far left lane, but you needed to make that turn that you just passed. You know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. It's a crossing over of several lanes. So everybody's slamming on their brakes. Do you know what that actually is? That's an illustration of transgression. It means that there is a straight mark, that there is a straight line, and that we are crossing against it. We are crossing over against it. And so next time that you're driving and you have somebody pull, uh, if you were watching Crimson Tide, you'd say, that's a crazy Ivan. If somebody pulls that kind of a move, that's a transgression. It means that there is a straight and narrow way and that we are crossing against it. What about trespass? It simply means this. We go where we are told not to go. What does this reveal about our hearts? We don't like the boundaries that God has created for us. We buck against the ways that he is providing for us. We don't look to him for his perfect provision for us. We find ourselves discontent. Our hearts full of greed, longing for more. What if we miss something that was better over there? Well, our trespass, our transgression, our sin, 
those words that God, use, that God uses in his word to help us understand not only our actions, but the heart that motivates those actions to begin with. He shows us where they began. In Genesis 3, in that moment where they ate the, truth, ate the fruit and death comes into the world. A spiritual death, a physical death, yes, and a decay in the world that God had created and set in motion as good. They transgressed, they sinned, they trespassed, they broke God's command. And every time that we sin, every time that we run in a way that's contrary to what God has said through lying, stealing, hating, disobedience, you name it, the list goes on and on, a transgression has been made that needs to be paid for. There's a price that comes with that. But before we get to the cost and and how pervasive it is, we should understand what some of the results are. Let's look at verses 7 through 13 together. The results are shame and harm. In the midst of this broken, skewed, fallen world, and this moment that all of that enters, none of that describes the wholeness and the fullness that, that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, this kind of bountiful cornucopia of creation that seems to be described in, cha- in verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Those are non-existent now. It's very direct language that's used. And we realize that there is an experience that we have in the world and in our relationships that are a result of this broken trust in God. Now, primarily, that has to do with our heavenly relationship with God, but we're going to see the effects begin to play out with others as well. Verses 7 through 8 help us to understand that there's this illustration that's happening when the fig leaves are used here of what sin's effect has on us. When we realize what we've done, There's a need to cover that. There is a shame that comes with that. We're afraid of being seen as sinful. We're afraid of being known as ones who have fallen short. This facade that we try to put on in front of one another is fractured in some way. It no longer covers what we need it to. And in the midst of that pride that comes into our heart, in that moment where we feel like we're vulnerable, it's the same pride that caused us to sin in the first place. It's the same thing that caused us to long for something more for ourselves and for our own glory or for our own pleasure or for our own good. And it begins to expose itself in other ways through shame. And then we have God come walking in in this communion that we were created for. In the evening, in this garden breeze where he's walking in. And and Adam and Eve hide from him. It's something they've never done. It's something that they've never experienced before. Not only is sin transgressing against God's commands, but it causes us to run from God rather than run to him. It causes us to turn away from him even more and begin to try to hightail it out of there. taking that fracture of relationship and actually increasing it rather than decreasing it. I believe this is why James chapter 4 tells us that we are to humble ourselves and that as we draw near to God, what does he do? He draws near to us. That is such a scandalous verse that only the gospel helps us understand. 
that I can draw near to God rather than running from him. Genesis 3 says my natural response is to flee and to hide and to try to come up with some cover for myself. And James says, don't do that. Through Christ, you can draw near. You can draw near and receive grace in your time of need. David, in his... Uh, in, in Psalm chapter 51, which is the famous psalm that is used after he is caught in adultery, he says that he's going to cast himself on the mercies of God at the end of his life and at the end of his reign. He remembers that moment as he's facing a challenge in his rule, and he says, let us cast ourselves on the mercy of God because if there's anything I'm going to put my trust in, it's not my ability to make this decision. I'm going to cast myself on the mercy of God. Sin, in its pervasive nature, tells us that we should run. The grace of God tells us, cast yourself on my mercy. If we look at verses 9 through 3, we understand that right now there are people, even in this room, who are spiritually speaking running and hiding. Running away from God rather than running to God. Yes, you're here physically You're here in person, but we realize through Genesis chapter 3 that it is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the way that our mind is set. Here's the truth today. Neither running, covering, or hiding can be a match for God's revealing and finding. I don't say that as a threat I don't say that to sound holier than thou. I I don't say that to sound overly spiritual. I say it because when we see God ask the question, where are you? It's one of five questions that he asks in this passage. When God asks the question, where are you? It's not because he didn't know. It's not like he had, you know what? I, I left my omnipresence in heaven when I came down to walk with you. Where are you at? No part of his nature was missing in that moment. He's giving them opportunity to respond to his voice. And if you're here today in person only, and you're attempting to run or hide, even just by attending, but not submitting, can I challenge you today to hear his voice and to respond, here I am, Lord. It's the first act of casting yourself on the mercy of God. To respond to his voice, here I am and I'm yours. Now you may may look at a passage like this and think, this seems pretty heavy-handed, Chris. Oh, I feel it. I feel it because it's me without Christ, isn't it? It's you without Christ. And you may have that thought like, "This, this feels a bit unfair. Like if I were there, this is how I would have handled it. Not really. See, God sees throughout time, and he sees how we would have all responded. So Adam represents the head of mankind. I think about it this way. My my home was built in 1962. And every once in a while, I have some questions about that. And in Florida, there are two parts of your home that you are aware of most because they are some of the most critical aspects of your home and they're the most expensive. Your roof 
and your foundation. Now, we're in hurricane season, so everybody's aware of roofs right now. We just had a hailstorm go through back in March or April, so everybody's aware of roofs right now, right? Like, roofing contractors are out everywhere trying to help, help you with your insurance claim. That's a common thing to see in the state of Florida. Here's the other common thing to do, and if, if you live in a home, perhaps you've had this experience. You see the evening news, and you, you learn the news of a new sinkhole, and all of a sudden, when you're mowing the yard next time, you're like, I don't remember that divot being there. Hmm, must be a sinkhole. I'm, I'm going to step lightly when I mow there next time. Or you're running through the house, and all of a sudden you realize, like, why does it sound like the whole house is resonating when I'm running through the house? I wonder if the foundation is secure. In my kid's school, there's actually the gentleman that poured, the gentleman that owns the company that poured the foundation for this building. And I remember joking with him one time when I found that out uh, early on, uh, this is several years ago, and I said, uh, well, Mr. Goss, thanks, it's still there. How do you encourage somebody that pours a foundation? You, you don't think about it often until you do, and then you're worried about it. Why? Because it's costly to repair. It's costly to repair. And in the same way that my house being built in 1962, and I don't know all the things that have happened with the foundation since that time, if there's anything right or wrong with it, we experience the same in the fracture of foundation that Adam put in our relationship with God as our creator. There is a fracture that cannot be fixed with human hands. There is a brokenness to the foundation of humanity through Adam and through Eve in their actions, in that moment of doubt, in that moment of sin, and grasping for something that was beyond what they were created for, that I live in the ruin of as the foundation for my relationship with our Creator. You experience the same. In the same way that a homeowner receives, once you kind of transfer the title from one homeowner to the next, they receive the results, good or bad, of that foundation that's laid in that home. seems like we need somebody that can fix that for us. But there's nothing that we can do. There's no amount of sugar sand we can kind of burr up next to it. There's nothing in Florida's aquifer that we're all kind of floating over in this state that's going to be enough for that foundation to be secure. We need a Savior. We need one who can fix that foundation and become the new foundation for our lives to be built on. In the midst of this fracture, in the midst of this disrepair, in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this shame, in the midst of this missing the mark, going where we should not, in this transgression, crossing against the will of God, what do we see? We see a need for a Savior. But much like the foundation is going to cost a lot for the homeowner. Our salvation before a holy God comes with great cost. It comes with a high price. Verses 14 through 21 show us not only the pervasive nature of sin and how it just affects everyone and every relationship, as even God's own creation that he said was good, as he goes through and he individually curses the serpent. As he goes through and he individually curses the woman and he individually curses the man. We see the pervasive nature of sin, but we also see that there is a tremendous cost for our sin. It's when we begin to realize that our own actions will never be enough. 
what it is that we try to do in our good works, even if, it's, even if we're trying to subdue the earth perfectly as we were created to do, it will never amount to enough. The narrative here breaks down into three parts in verses 14 through 21. And, and, and again, we see this, this use in, in this historical narrative of Hebrew poetry as he kind of breaks it down into three different stanzas. That's Moses as he's writing to the people coming out of Egypt that are exile that were formerly exiles, that are now sojourners in this land. God's going to address the serpent. He's going to address Satan. He's going to address the woman and then the man. Now in verses 14 through 15, we see that unlike the man and the woman, the, the serpent's not receiving an opportunity to explain himself. It received only its sentence in two parts. Humiliation of going about who it is on its belly, and eating dust. The serpent would be forever be in submission before all of creation. And in the second part, God tells us of the serpent's ultimate judgment. In theological terms, this is where we are introduced to something that is marvelous to help us understand God's word. We're introduced to what's known as the covenant of grace. There, there are all the players now on the stage. There's God as our creator. There's man and woman as the creation. There are the, there are the aspects for relational covenant, relational bond. All of the players are on the scene now. And what comes in here is relational fracture, brokenness, sinfulness, division, separation. And in the midst of of the curses being given out. God tells Satan what his future is. And he does so in a way that gives you and me hope today. Because we're not limited to what we have in Genesis chapter 3. We understand the covenant of grace and how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We understand where this salvation has come from. And it helps us to see Jesus this morning as more beautiful. It helps us to understand him as our perfect savior. Guys upstairs, I'm going to skip down my notes a bit here. We do see Adam and Eve receiving punishment. We do see God giving attention to them and telling him what the distortion is going to be in the midst of this. But I want to highlight a few things for us today, not only in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but in verses 20 through 21, that there is a coming restoration for us. Perhaps this is what Adam was recognizing when he names his wife Eve. Because up to this point, we don't know how long had been the time frame that had been kind of played out up to this point. But she had only been referred to as woman. She has a name fit for her now, Eve, the mother of all the living. So even after the pronouncement of death as a part of this broken relationship, as a part of this fracture where death enters in the world, where shame enters into the world. There's also the announcement of life that's to come. There is an enemy that is defeated in verse 15, and then there's life that will come because she is the mother of all humanity. That means that there is more life to be had, even as a proclamation of death comes over her. 
Adam must have heard the promise of restoration. He must have heard that there was some resolution coming in verse 15. Who would expect some kind of proclamation of hope for mankind in the midst of this curse being told to them? Adam picked up on it. And this glimmer of hope is there for us to receive the comfort of the gospel as God's people. The consequences of sin, they do remain. The temptation to distrust. This expulsion from the Garden of Eden that we see in 3, 22 through 24, but that's just the beginning of the story. It's not the end of it. There is victory and there is life that is possible. There is a return to Eden that we're called to, but it's going to come at great cost. It's not going to come to me or to you. It's not going to come to Adam or Eve, but it's going to come to the promised offspring. The one in verse 15 that is told that he will bruise his heel as he bruises the head of the serpent. Back to Lloyd-Jones in the Gospel in Genesis, he says this, Man has been trying to get back into Eden ever since he went out of it. That's the whole history of civilization. It's the whole meaning of philosophy and all political thought and all the blueprints of utopias at all times and in all places. Man trying to get back into paradise. See, understanding the cost of sin, is an, it's an important aspect of our spiritual life. God is gracious in revealing to us the weight of our sin and the harm and the separation that it brings for us. But he's gracious to reveal the way out of our sin through the offspring that's to come. Jesus, the one who will crush the serpent's head, the one who will defeat sin and death, the one who can and does restore us in a right relationship with God, our Father. Can I just clarify something here too? Sometimes I, I, may, I may even fall, fall victim to this unintentionally. I think it's important for us to understand that God is our Father. Not God as Father. He's not a type of. He is perfect in being Father to us. He is perfect as our Father. So we're not comparing him to our earthly experiences, good, bad, and different. He is perfectly in his character, our Father. And Jesus Christ perfectly restores us to right relationship with him. That's why I think that James 4 is so scandalous when it says that we can draw near. I appreciate the old adage where it says that our right understanding of God as Father says, I'm in trouble, let me call Dad. Not, I'm in trouble, let me run. That helps us understand. I I love when my children call me when they need help. I love that. Because it says, you can come to me when you're in time of need. I, I want to exemplify that. Why? Because I have a Heavenly Father that welcomes me the same way. I have a Heavenly Father that doesn't turn me away and say, look at the mess you've gotten yourself into this time. You got here. I'm going to watch you struggle and wriggle your way out of it. What is that? That's a bootstrap theology. Pull yourself out of this. No, I am helpless. Psalm 40 says, I wait patiently for the Lord. And what does he do? He lifts me out of the mud and the mire. That's who God is, his father. 
That's who God reveals himself. Yes, there are consequences that come, and there are covenant curses that come in the midst of this broken relationship, and we should be aware of those things. In the same way that God hasn't changed as our Father, God has not changed in his holiness and in his majesty and his transcendence over creation, but he does not change in his availability and his nearness to us today. And through Jesus Christ, we can draw near. I am grateful that I am not reading Genesis 3 without the lens of the gospel because I think that my temptation would be to be hopeless in the midst of this. My temptation would be to gloss over 15, to gloss over 20 through 22, and to just only understand consequence. And that's not because of my upbringing. That's not because of my childhood. That's because that's of my bent to think that things are broken and will never be restored. But God, who is rich in mercy, provides us Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us, both in our spirit, in our soul, and through his word. And he helps us to understand that we have a great salvation. We have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the one who defeats sin and death. He is the one who covers us in our shame. So yes, Genesis 3 does provide us a dire picture of our reality in this life and eternally without Christ. But we remember Genesis is about the origins of the grace of God. And even in the midst of this dire reality of sin, we're given a glimpse of hope through the comfort of the gospel. Now Genesis 3.15, as I pointed out just a moment ago, it uniquely stands out as it introduces us to the origin of the covenant of grace. What does it do? It helps us to see how comprehensive our sin is. It helps us to understand how great our salvation is through Jesus Christ. It helps us to see the results through shame and harm of how sin helps us to understand. And I know this sounds like a weird way to put it, but sin actually helps us understand how unimaginable the mercy of God is toward us who deserve punishment. In order to receive mercy, we must have been under some sort of judgment to begin with. In order to understand grace, we need to see how unmerited this favor is by our actions. And seeing the great cost of our sin helps us to understand how unmerited this favor is that we receive in the grace of God. And how is that grace poured out to us? By faith in Jesus Christ alone. See, it would be Eve's offspring who would ultimately set all things right. Jesus Christ, born of a woman, a virgin, so many years later. He became the curse for us. He became the ultimate expression of this covenant curse on our behalf. He took that on himself. He didn't just clothe himself in the flesh that he himself had created. He also took the aspect of the curse. And we're going to begin to see this kind of curse and blessing language throughout the book of Genesis as it plays out in the weeks ahead as we finish out this series. This covenant curse. He took that for us in his death on the cross. He steps out of a garden tomb. He shows us that he has crushed the head of the serpent who bruised his heel in death because God keeps his promise. God keeps his covenant promise. God always keeps his covenant promise. I want to lead us carefully through this as I invite the band to join me. <clears throat> Earlier I said that we, we believe in the prophetic gift, and there has been a, a stirring this morning 
that, that I just want to set a, a context for as we prepare our hearts to receive of this prophetic word. And, and there may be a thought of, you know, we're in the gathered church. How should prophetic work in the gathered church? You know, we are constantly wrestling with and evaluating that. We are constantly praying through that God would reveal to us the best way to to pursue, as we're told to in 1 Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit so that we can be built up, so that we can be unified, so that we can be matured as a church, ultimately so that God would receive glory through our lives. And this morning, any prophetic ministry that we receive, any pastoral ministry that as a church we are able to be a part of, any ministry that we're a part of as a church is never to bring glory to the individuals or to Metro Life Church. It's to bring glory to God. And in that context, uh, we received some prophetic words earlier this week that we've just been praying through for this morning. And I actually asked that it would come at this point in the service. And in receiving this word, I understand that this may not be a word over the church, Metro Life Church. It may not be a word over every individual here. But because this word has a unique context to it, and because our goal is never to embarrass or to call out or to shame or isolate anyone. I don't think that that's the point of prophetic ministry. I think the point of prophetic ministry is that you would understand that God is running after you. I think part of what we see in the grand narrative of Scripture is that Genesis 3 shows us the cosmic divide and the chapters that come throughout the rest of the book show us how God is constantly closing that gap by sending his son to be here on the earth, by sending his spirit to dwell in us. He is constantly closing the gap that our sin created in Genesis chapter three. And this morning, because this word has to do with particular sin, I don't want it to be a moment of embarrassment. Actually, what I think is, is this would be me kind of telling you that's the type of word that's coming. This isn't a read your mail. There's nobody's name associated with this. It's nothing like that. We're not going to stand up here and tell these individuals to stand up. I don't believe that that's how this particular aspect of the gift works. Actually, I think how this aspect of the gift works is this is God's kindness to you to let you know you are near sin and transgression. You are near trespass. But he is closer ever still calling you not to step where he has not called you to go. So as we prepare our hearts to receive, let me share this closing thought before we hear this word. I do think that at times a repentant lifestyle can get a bad rap in the church. You may ask, what what do you mean by that? There is no doubt that those who are in Christ are a new creation. We are sons and daughters of God, chosen by him before all time, called out of darkness into light to be his children. Sin no longer reigns over our lives, but it does remain. 
once we've submitted ourselves to a Savior who is also the one who is the Lord over our lives. Sin doesn't make up our identity anymore. Sin doesn't make up our life, our mission, our mindset toward the world around us. But it does remain. It does still skew. So where sin does remain, we should remain vigilant in repentance. And what is that? That is acknowledging our need before the Lord. That is acknowledging our transgression, our our trespass, our falling short, our sinfulness. Because repentance is a response to the goodness. Repentance is a response to the kindness. It's a response to the grace and mercy of God in our lives. It's turning from something to someone greater. It's a turning away. In light of that, I thought it might be helpful to consider the five questions that are asked in this passage in light of the gospel. How that informs our repentance, how that informs our response. So in in this, we hear this, verse 1, does God actually say this? His word stands true. The gospel helps us understand his word stands true, even when the world is asking questions about itself, about God, about one another. God's word stands true from one generation to another. Verse 9, he asks the question, where are you? It is God who seeks us out. Matthew and Luke give us Jesus' own words telling us how he goes out to find the one lost sheep, leaving the other 99 and coming back rejoicing when the one is found. Verse 11 asks the question, who told you that you were naked? All of Scripture reminds us that He clothes us in righteousness. In the same way that He provided fig leaves for Adam and Eve, not simply seeing our vulnerability and shame and taking advantage of that, but bringing a resolution to it, bringing a restoration from it. Verse 11 asks the question, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God's commands are still good, and they are for our good because they are from His good creation. And lastly, what is this that you have done? I think 1 John 1.9 answers this best for us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Returning to Lloyd-Jones, and I don't think I had this one for the guys upstairs. For all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the garden entrance is no longer blocked. In Christ, we can face God. We can have boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. Not by myself, no, because I am a vile sinner, but I am in Him. So I enter by His obedience. He kept the law perfectly, not only for Himself, but for all who believe in Him. Do you want life? life that is indeed abundant, life that will take you through death into eternity and glory. Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want happiness, my dear friend? Give up trying to obtain them in your own strength or in the strength of any human knowledge. They have all failed. There is only one way. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You must pass through Him and in Him 
into the presence of God who is ever ready to receive all who come to him by Jesus Christ.